Thank you all so much for listening. This show has grown so much over the last year and a half. It keeps doubling in size. Now episodes are downloaded in over 60 countries around the world. Absolutely amazing. And one of the best ways that you guys can help this show is to write reviews. And I know it's a pain, right? But if you go on to um, Apple Podcasts, Library, Six Ranch Podcasts, you scroll down to the bottom, then you can rate the show and you can add a review. And for the next month, I'm going to look at all the new reviews that go in there and I'm going to randomly pick one of you guys and I'm going to send you a Sig Sauer Kilo 2400 ABS rangefinder. You can look it up. It's the expensive rangefinder. It's one of the best rangefinders out there. And it's what I use in competitions. It has a weather unit in it. Um, it'll give you a good ballistic hold for anything that you can range. And you can range stuff farther than you can shoot. I promise. Okay. Excellent rangefinder. And I want to give one away to one of you who reviews the show in the next month. Starting now, go. So tank will go about 40, 44 miles an hour. It's actually governed at that. Um, which is interesting because 44 miles an hour and 72 tons is, is ridiculous. Um, you know, I mean, people think about driving on the highway at 44 miles an hour and it seems slow, but when you're in a 72 ton tank and you're doing 44 miles an hour over the desert, um, it's incredible. And, uh, and my first deployment in Iraq, that's what we did everywhere. We went, we were full throttle, um, <laughs> everywhere, everywhere we went. Cause at that point we still felt that the faster we went, the longer it took for an IED to detonate, the better our chances were that we could get over that thing. <laughs> we were wrong. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not good physics, but I like the, I like the aggression. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning into the show today. All these shows are uh, are personal to me and I love these conversations. I love having conversations that are on purpose because that's something that we just don't do that much anymore. Today's show is especially personal to me. Uh, there's not a, a person in the world that I respect more than Jack Ramson. He's, a, he's an excellent father, a husband. Uh, he's one of the best Marines that's ever lived. And it was the honor of my life to work with him and, uh, and to fight a war with him. 
I cannot describe, I don't have the words to describe what I owe this man. It's, it's just, uh, it's, it's tough because there's stories that I tell about war that I feel like elucidate a certain point or are funny or entertaining. Uh, but there's a lot that I don't talk about and we start sort of had to access some of that in this show. Uh, and it's, it's definitely not easy for me. That was a tough, tough time in my life continues to be. I'm, I'm just so, so grateful for Jack. So honored to have him on the show. Don't typically do intros like this, but I felt like it was important for you all to understand, you know, what, what this guy means to me and, and what this episode means to me. I hope you enjoy it. Jack Ramson, like one of the most important people in my life that I rarely get to talk to. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, James. It's uh, it's great to be here, and I don't know if I'm the most important, but I certainly appreciate your friendship. Yeah, how you been? I've been well. Um, you know, settling back into North Carolina, and uh, finally got out of California, so that was a blessing. But uh, unfortunately, didn't get up to see you while I was out there. You just can't stay away from North Carolina. It keeps sucking you back yeah. in. I know, I know. Well, I'm here for good now until the boys graduate high school. So. <laughs> what's your job these days uh so right now uh with tanks going away i'm a first sergeant so it's more administrative in nature uh just making sure that people are being good dudes and doing the right thing and kind of uh maintaining the traditions and history of the marine corps advising the commanders are you doing that for tankers or like what unit are you with no so i've i've done a complete 180 um i'm I'm cross the uh, the river, and I'm now with an air wing unit. I was actually the first first sergeant to ever go to an MWSS unit, which is basically a ground support unit for the air wing. So it's been an, an eye opening experience. Learning a lot. Yes, yes, uh, every day. Every do you day. have to do you have to talk to air wingers differently than you talk to tankers? It's definitely a different mindset. Uh, the uh, the mentality on that side of the of the the river as we would call it lejeune is on one side of the river new river is on the other side um yeah the the demeanor and the the way that they i guess act is much different than the way we did in, in division units <laughs> <laughs> so when i first met you i'm pretty sure you were teaching didia um probably at Fort Knox, Kentucky at tank school. And you're one of my instructors there. Um, what is DDIA for those who don't know? Uh, DDIA is kind of the engagement process for the Marine Corps. So it stands for detect, identify, decide, engage, and then assess. Uh, so that's kind of the overarching engagement process for, for tanks um, in the military. Uh, just whatever's going on and whatever engagement it is, it can, it can always divert back to the detection process, the first step. And those are steps that hunters can take as well. A hundred percent. Yes. It's something that I use in, in my hunting skills uh, every day. Well, break that down for me a little bit and talk about how Didia can help hunters. So the first step, obviously detection, um, you know, obviously while we're, while we're in the woods, while we're, while we're in the bush, um, 
we're we're obviously hyper vigilant. We're looking at what's going around in our surroundings. Um, we're you know we're we're searching. You know we're looking in uh, in different manners. Obviously, depending on the type of terrain that we're hunting, we're we're scanning our sector. We're looking at different ways to find uh, the target, the animal that we're looking for. Um, so we use that detection process in that, and and I've used different methods uh that i've learned in the military as far as um you know in low light conditions off center vision method and things like that 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 will aid you in that process but in essence the detect um is probably the most important stage when it comes to hunting because that's where especially if you're hunting in a in either a dense um or a long range environment where you're going to actually find the game or the the critters that you're looking for uh, then from there, uh, you go to identify and that's where you're figuring out is that once you see something moving, you know, and it's always that squirrel, you know, you hear him in the background and he's, he's, he's crunching the, the leaves and everything behind you and you think it's a monster and, and you finally slowly turn your head and, and it's, it's that God forsaken squirrel that's, you know, molesting your mind. Um, but, uh, but the identify stage is basically just that once you see something or once you identify that there is a target out there identify is where you can either discriminate what kind of target it is is that something that i want to prosecute is that a game that i want to harvest or is that something i want to pursue um, and i think this is probably where we as hunters um, make a decision not only is this the type of animal that i'm in the pursuit for um, but is this is this what i'm here for is this the um, the animal or the, the type of the animal that I'm, that I'm looking for. So if it's, if it's an elk in your situation, um, is this situation going to lend towards a successful hunt or what I would attribute or, or say would be successful? Um, is this the, the type of species that I'm looking for? Is this the, you know, you know, the right, the right animal? Is this what I want to pursue? Then from there, uh, you go into, you transition into the decide stage, which is kind of what we were just talking about, where at that point, do you continue to look at that animal? Um, do you continue, do you close the distance on it and decide if you're going to uh, maybe get a little closer to see if that's an animal that you want to harvest? Or, you know, if you're, you know, uh, a, a, uh, you call it an Eastern hunter. I call it a Midwestern hunter because I don't hunt the East except for North Carolina. But um, if I'm hunting from the ground or a deer stand, you know, is that something that I need to close the distance on? Is that something that, you know, in my position now, since I'm basically an unpaid guide with my children, um, <laughs> is that something that I want to close the distance on with them to try to give them a better opportunity? And then from there, um, you've got engaged, which is pretty self-explanatory. So once you've identified, yes, this is what I want to go after. Um, and, and you get yourself in a position where, uh, you can take a shot, you know, that's when you actually engage. That's when you actually, you know, um, set up for the shot and actually go through the fundamentals of the, the, the shot and, and take it and harvest the animal. Uh, and then the assess portion is, is what happens those, you know, anywhere from 30 seconds to, you know, 30 hours after you shoot that animal, depending on the shot you take, um, where, you know, you're trying to recall in your mind, how did that shot feel? 
Uh, where did I see the impact of that shot? How did the animal respond? Where was the last point that I saw that animal go? Um, and all of those things collectively kind of lend you towards your ability to, to, to making a decision on how you're going to go in and either harvest that or go and try to find that animal right away. Or if you're going to maybe back off a little bit, give it a little bit of time and then go in a little bit later. And um, that's that assess phase. And, and just like in, in the military, the DIA process uh, at any time can go back to um, the detect phase where, so if you're in that process and maybe you see a bull elk that is in some nasty stuff and you're just not willing to go down there, or maybe it's not the caliber of bull that you're looking for, you know, once you're in the identification process, then you automatically go back to the detection phase and you start looking again, you start glassing, you start trying to find that animal. So, so that's how I use that process. Yeah, that's, that's well explained. And that can seem simple. It can seem so simple that we don't even need an acronym. We don't need a class for this, but if you develop really strong fundamentals using steps like this, then you can put that stuff on autopilot and you can make decisions that much faster. I think that's really important. Absolutely. You know, I think the, the biggest mistake that even, even myself, you know, especially with the kids now, I get real excited, you know, so maybe we do take a shot at a deer um, and, uh, and I get real excited because I'm, I want to go see what they got. I, w- I want that, you know, that, that feeling, I want that harvest as, as bad as they do. Um, and so it's good to be able to take a step back and say, no, I need, you know, here's how it felt. Here's what it is. And just like my father walked me through that process when I was a kid, um, I walk my kids through the same thing. And, and even if I'm the one hunting, uh, I always try to recall in my mind, what was the last thing I saw? How did it feel? You know, and I, and I retrace every step that I took so that I can make sure that I can, you know, harvest that animal and, and in the most humane and ethical way I can. Well, from, from that class, you continued to train me at tank school for the next, gosh, five or six months. That school took forever. (laughs) And, uh, and you know, you stayed there. I went to the fleet and uh, ended up picking up a platoon back at Camp Lejeune um, as a as a platoon commander, and then I deployed. At some point, you got transferred from tank school back to Lejeune, and after we suffered some some casualties early on in the deployment, we needed combat replacements. And uh, fortunately, you were the one to to come out and take that that position. And Jack became my wingman. So we think of wingman probably, I think most people, when they hear that, they think of like, you know, their buddy's role at a bar or top gun, but talk to me a little bit about how tank platoons work and um, like the, the one, two, three, four tanks, and then sort of what your role was. So, so first off it was, you know, my pleasure and, and I was just, you know, so fortunate to have been put in a platoon with you. Um, you know, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't handpick the better platoon commander, uh, to be able to, to go on my last combat deployment with. So, Thank you but as that. far as, as far as, uh, the, how the platoon functions, um, it was a unique dynamic because especially coming into it in that, uh, in, in that situation, um, you know, the way that, that a platoon will typically function is you've got your, 
you know, your youngest platoon or your youngest tank commander who's just considered a tank commander. And he's the three. Um, and he's kind of the junior, the junior, usually a sergeant uh, guy. And then you've got a section leader. Uh, the section leader is typically the second more uh, kind of middle experienced guy. Uh, and then you've got a platoon sergeant who's kind of the senior enlisted guy in that platoon. Um, after that, and he would be the four. And then the platoon commander, who's the one who's, you know, the, the officer that's in the platoon that's commanding the, the formation. Um, usually the, the four as the more experienced enlisted guy and the three as the most junior guy are together. And then the two uh, and, the, and the one, the officer, are paired up together as wingmen. Um, very rarely in the tank community do we operate in a platoon. Um, I would say out of all the combat, you know, deployments that I've went on and different operations that I've been on, I would say I could probably count on, on both of my hands, the platoon level operations. Usually a platoon is going to support uh, quite a large infantry element, you know, typically a battalion. Um, so normally a, a section, two tanks is going to support anything smaller than that. And two tanks can do a hell of a lot of damage, um, as we saw. So the interaction between your within your section is is important, though. Uh, and you kind of develop a very tight bond within your tank because you're living within quarters that are so tight that y you you see some things that a lot of people probably don't want to experience <laughs> outside of a tank. And when you're four feet away from the furthest guy. Um, you know, you end up being very intimate with each other. So uh, that that carries over throughout your platoon, but even more so within your section. Um, if you can't trust your wingman to have your best interest in mind and to be watching out for you, um, it's a very challenging situation. And I've been in that situation. Um, so having you as my wingman and knowing that, that you know, at any time, wherever I was going, my strengths and your strengths, we kind of worked well together. You had a lot of, of real world strengths that I had never experienced before, especially in the mountains of um, Afghanistan. Uh, there were times I remember where, you know, I looked at you and said, there's no way in hell we're going to get up that mountain. And you were <laughs> like, push your purse down and follow me. You know? <laughs> and I value that. Yeah. So. Well, it is, it is a neat relationship and to sort of break down what's actually happening um, during combat operations, I have to be talking to like three people at any given time. Um, so I've got a little radio switch going back and forth and I can hear like everybody inside my tank talking on intercom. I can hear my platoon channel and then I can hear like an air channel and then a company channel <laughs> all at the same time. Um, yeah. And then you just run this little switch back and forth for who you need to be talking to. And it, it seems incredibly overwhelming for me to look back on that and think about listening to three conversations simultaneously that, that I'm supposed to be engaging in. And one of the ways to keep it from getting completely out of control is my gunner, who's supposed to be, you know, the best gunner in the platoon, because he really needs to take charge of my tank. Um, because I'm talking to too many other people. 
you know, he's, he's running the tank as much as possible, but my wingman needs to also be able to talk to him and run both of our tanks in case I'm talking to, you know, artillery or an aircraft and talking to a company commander or, you know, adjacent units that are more than likely in our case, foreign. Um, so you're trying yeah. to understand Australian all of a sudden. <laughs> or Georgia. And, uh, yeah. Or Georgian. Oh my goodness. The Georgians. So yeah, it's an incredibly close relationship and it's, it's really a couple minds functioning as, as one mind. Like we need to be able to anticipate everything that the other person is thinking and doing and also under like pretty incredible amounts of stress and, and fatigue, like most people oh. um, will never experience in their lives. So there's times when, when Jack and I had to, you know, stay up and function for like 70 hours straight. And uh, I just can't tell you how weird your mind starts to get at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Only so many jet boil coffees can, uh, can help you. And, and after a while, it just becomes a mute point. Your, yeah. your mind is, is on its own. You know, I, there was a time when, uh, when we were navigating at night and there's all these great big holes in the desert called, uh, called Carez. And it's like an underground aqueduct and, um, and the, these holes can be big. They can swallow up a tank. You know, you might go 50, 60 feet down into the ground. And there was a point in the desert that was like, okay, once we hit this GPS point, we need to turn left. And Jack was ahead of me and I called over the radio. I was like, Hey man, you got to bang a left right here. And you called back and you're like, I can't, there's a Carez hole right next to me. And I was like, no, there's not like, you got to turn left. And looking back on that, I don't know which one of us was right. Like we'd been up for the same amount of time, but one of us was seeing a giant cavern in the, in the earth and the other was not. I'll never forget that. My whole, my whole life, that'll be one of the things that stands out to me because in the back of my head, I thought, you idiot, this lieutenant <laughs> is telling you where you're at, you know? And, and, uh, and, and I was, you know, but I was convinced. But, you know, further along down the story, you were absolutely correct. Because if you remember correctly, I was doing S turns through that whole Perez <laughs> system. So you might not want to say that over the radio, but I will. You know, you were absolutely correct. Um, I was, I was weaving in and out, doc, you know, ducking and dodging like, like a running back. You know, through those Perez systems. Um, that 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 is something that I'll never forget. Yeah, those uh, those Carezes were brutal, and the enemy used them as as a way to um, have an ambush point, and then, you know, really restricted where people could go. Something that I think is worth pointing out is that when we went places, typically it went um, the two tank, which was Jack, and then me, and then the three tank, who's the junior guy, and then the four tank, who's the platoon sergeant. And we, because there was a huge threat from IEDs everywhere we went was in a column and we tried to stay within each other's tracks because if you went off on your own somewhere, you're increasing the risk of hitting an IED. So everywhere that we went, Jack went first. So he was leading the way through, you know, the greatest density of mines in the world everywhere for months, for hundreds, thousands of miles. It, it takes such an incredible amount of courage to do that, I, it, it, it seems again, looking back like an impossible task to even get in and go. 
at the time you don't even think about it. You know, you, you just, you've got, you're so mission oriented. Um, you've got, you've got an unstated mind and you've got, you've got a place you need to be. And, and, uh, and you're hyper vigilant. You're looking at, you know, everything around you, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think back at, at the situations that you were in, you know, and think that that was a Tuesday, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and how, um, how you just, your mind allows you to focus on other things. Uh, unfortunately for me on that deployment, I don't, I didn't, didn't, uh, didn't find any, any big IDs the wrong way, you know, um, but, uh, you know, I, I found a couple small ones, fortunately. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it is, it's, it's unique how your mind allows you to, to stay focused on one, one end state. Part of the reason that, that we're going in, in the kind of places that, you know, Jack is, as a tank expert would look at me and be like, I don't think we should go there was because if, Nobody thinks that a tank can go there. Nobody's going to put an IED there. Um, so yeah, there is huge risk in the, the steepness of the ground that we were going up and down, but there's a greater risk from going someplace that was predictable. So that was mm -hmm. a, a big part of my strategy, which came back from, um, honestly, from like trapping coyotes and stuff as a kid, like you, you put a trap in a place where you expect an animal to step based on what you know about that animal. And then logging around here as a kid, you know, we would drive cats in just incredibly steep ground. And that also taught me like, this is what a tracked machine is capable of. And, and all those skills that you bring from your, from your previous life, and then the training you get, um, and then the teamwork that you have, like all that can come together and, and really benefit the entire platoon and make sure that you're accomplishing missions. Talk me through some of the capabilities and limitations of the, uh, the God-given M1A1 Abrams main battle tank. So I'll tell you on that deployment, um, you know, it's, it's one thing for me to, to have started teaching students, the enlisted Marines in, in basic school, on what their capabilities were and what the tank was capable of doing. Um, and, and through my time in, in my deployments in Iraq, um, I never had to test a lot of that. Um, but when I went to Afghanistan with you, uh, I was put in, in a lot of positions where I did. Um, so I would say on that deployment, I probably learned more uh, about the actual capabilities of the tank than, than anywhere else. Um, you know, they say those who can't do teach. And, uh, and I was a pretty good instructor. But, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, so... The, the thing that was very, I think the thing that troubled me the most was we would go up mountains that were incredibly steep grades. And, uh, and I knew that, that my main gun would only elevate 20 degrees. So my ability to, to search the, the mountains that we were going to be going up was, was limited uh, until I was committed and actually going up them. Uh, I wasn't able to have my gunner actually scan the area that we were going into a lot of times uh, just because the grade was so steep. And I think that that was probably the most challenging thing for me on that deployment was um, 
you know, knowing that I was going up a grade steeper than my cannon could cover. Um, you know, so when you talk about the capabilities, um, you know, the tank tank is able to climb, uh, what I then found a pretty incredible degree, uh, um, in, in, uh, elevation, uh, and go down <laughs> probably much easier. Um, but your cannon can only elevate 20 degrees, um, which at that point, then you're limited to your, to your machine guns, to your 50 cal and your 240, which are mounted on top of the, uh, of the turret. Um, you know, and at that point I'm more focused, uh, I have exclusivity over the 50 cal and I'm more focused on making sure I don't fall over the edge of the world than, uh, <laughs> than using my sights on my 50 cal. So really at that point, when we're going into terrain like that, you're, your focus kind of gets diverted into your naked eye, which you lose a lot of uh, ability to, to detect threats with your naked eye when you don't have magnification, especially ma uh, stabilized magnification, you know, when you can really focus on an object that uh, that's in an area while the vehicle's moving. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest things that, um, that perturbed me the most in those scenarios uh, was, was my inability to look at areas like that. So with that being said, some of the other things that are pretty unique to the, uh, to what was the Marine Corps tank was our 50 cal. Um, you know, the army has their version of, of their 50 cal, which is a crow, um, in my opinion is garbage. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I'll say that on open forum, uh, and I'll fight anyone that, that wants to argue it, but, uh, we had a different system, um, that was stabilized independently um, that functioned the same as the armies. Um, now at the time that, that you and I were deployed, we didn't have the, the slew to queue mode uh, that came a couple years later. We had the ability to, but us, you know, crusty enlisted guys, we gave a lot of pushback uh, when we came up with the stabilized 50 cal. We gave a lot of pushback on that because we thought it was taken away from the gunners detection process. Um, you know, the army wouldn't help fund our program like they did with almost everything else because the Marine Corps doesn't have any money uh, unless we had the ability to incorporate that into the system, which we later did. Um, you know, so we have the ability to independently scan with different sites, with different people. Uh, if the gunners look into the left and I'm looking to the right and I see something, I can literally push a button and the cannon and the sights would automatically go to that position uh, in, in a matter of, you know, a second or two. And the gunner would be able to, to focus in on that area. And he would be able to then take on that, the DIA process that we talked, to, talked about before and determine what kind of threat it was. And I could continue to try to try to find other threats to prosecute. That to me was actually, even though I, I gave more pushback than most, um, in the development of that, that was probably one of the most beneficial uh, upgrades to the tank that we received. Uh, and really what it did was it gave us the lethality of, of both weapon systems independently, whereas the Army has really lost a lot of their lethality of their weapon, of their 50 cal with their crow system. So that to me was probably the biggest upgrade that, that we had before we lost it. Well, if the army was good at running tanks, they would have had tanks in Afghanistan and they didn't. Yeah. Doctrinally, we're very different. 
Um, the way that, that the Marine Corps operated was, was very different than the way that the army does. We're obviously the Marine Corps is much more aggressive, but we have, we have a different formation that we use to prosecute targets than the army, even though we use the same fundamentals. So some common questions that people have about tanks, how fast does it go? So a tank will go about 40, 44 miles an hour. It's actually governed at that, um, which is interesting because 44 miles an hour and 72 tons is, is ridiculous. Um, you know, I mean, people think about driving on the highway at 44 miles an hour and it seems slow, but when you're in a 72 ton tank and you're doing 44 miles an hour over the desert, um, it's incredible. And, uh, and my first deployment in Iraq, that's what we did everywhere. We went, we were full throttle, um, <laughs> everywhere, everywhere we went. Cause at that point we still felt that the faster we went, the longer it took for an IED to detonate, the better our chances were that we could get over that thing. <laughs> we were wrong. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not good physics, but I like the, I like the aggression. Yeah. So, but 44 miles is a, uh, an incredible pace with, with a vehicle that big. And, and it's pretty smooth. It's pretty smooth going over rough ground. The faster you go, the smoother the ride is. And that's, that's all based off the hydraulic suspension system that we have. I actually had a tank in, in that deployment, my first deployment in Iraq, where it was a rebuilt. So halfway through the deployment, we got brand new tanks and, uh, you know, and so you have your tank that's old and it's kind of beat up, but you know everything about it. You know, you know, it's quirks. Every tank's got its own personality. And halfway through the deployment, we got rebuilt tanks and uh, and we had to kind of learn them. And uh, and my tank, you know, just like every other rebuilt tank had issues uh, where every seal on the arms for the for the wheels was put in backwards at installation. So. That was a lot of fun. I got to pull every one of those arms <laughs> off that weigh about 350 pounds and, uh, and turn the seals around. So that was neat. Um, <laughs> but we had one tank that the uh, governor didn't work on. And, uh, and so our first, when we got the tanks, we did all of our maintenance and everything on them for the first couple of days. And then we took them out to zero to, to zero the weapon systems to get, to get our dope. And, uh, and we only would drive our, our, the range that we had at the makeshift base that we were at, um, was only about, it was really, we were just shooting into a mountain range that was about four clicks away, four kilometers away. Um, and like I said, back then we were, we were balls out everywhere we went. Even going to the zero range, we were full speed. <laughs> and, uh, and it was my three tank who should have been in the back. Um, and his governor didn't work. And, uh, and he blew past all of us. Um, I don't know how fast he was going. Probably upward of 60 miles an hour. Um, crazy. I mean, he passed all of us and got to the screening line long enough for his dust to clear and us to see him. So probably close to 30 seconds before all of us. I mean, he was flying. And uh, by the time he got there, he had no rubber on his road wheels or his track. <laughs> it had all because of friction melted off. 
And uh, <laughs> to give you an idea of how hard that rubber is, it, you know, on that same deployment, money was tight, you know, and, uh, and when we, when we would train or when we would do things, we would try to get new road wheels before we'd go to the field for, you know, a month or two months at a time. And one time I came in with a rosebud and, uh, and we had a tanker bar, which is a 54 inch chisel and a sledgehammer. And I literally sat on a road wheel and tried to melt the rubber and chip it off with that sledgehammer and tanker bar and could not chip it. Um, so for that tank to have lost all of the rubber on that vehicle, the friction, I mean, I, the speed that they were going had to have been crazy. Um, in a matter of four clicks, it was, it was crazy. So was there a, uh, a one-way conversation with him at that point? I mean, at that point, like, what do you, like, I can't even be mad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, too funny. Um, okay. So what about the engine? Uh, so the engine is a 1500 uh, turbine. So it's actually the same engine that they put in the uh, Cobra helicopter. Um, when they turned the Cobra, when they, they didn't upgrade on the Cobra in, uh, I, I believe around 2008. And, uh, so it's a, it's a 1500, uh, it's a turbine. So in theory, it's got unlimited potential, but, uh, but a very finicky piece of gear. However, very robust. I mean, you'd be surprised, uh, people that, that have never been around a, a tank engine or a turbine engine like that, you would be amazed at the, the beating that that thing will take. I mean, just a very reliable engine. And what kind of fuel does it run off of? Anything. I mean, you know, it's, it's like back to the future. Like, you know, you <laughs> want to throw some beer and some, you know, kerosene in there. Like, <laughs> uh, that might be a little, I might've dated myself there, but uh um, so, you know, typically you want to run on JP4, JP5, JP8, you want to run on a higher end, uh, diesel jet fuel, but in reality, uh, you can use about any, any fuel that you have. Um, I mean, you can throw kerosene in that thing, uh, and it'll run. Um, you'll have to change the filters out after a little while. I mean, you're going you're gonna <laughs> to ruin some filters and some other things, but, um, the engine itself will function. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, very versatile when it comes to the type of fuel, but, but in theory, you would like to use a, a higher caliber jet fuel. Yes. What about shooting capabilities? Um, so the, the main gun, um, on the M1A1, the Marine Corps variant, uh, we were limited to 4,000 meters. Um, you know, and, and this is where the army would talk because the army's main gun would go up to 5,000 meters. We had the technology to expand that past 5,000 meters in the Marine Corps. We decided it just, it was unnecessary at the time. Um, our sites gave us the potential to go past that Our our detection ability. We probably could. Um, but realistically there wasn't a threat at that time that could exceed the, the limits that we had that, that required us to spend the money to actually make the upgrade. Um, most of our engagements were within 2000 meters anyways, very, I mean, I would say I could, I could count on, on 
probably one hand the amount of times that I shot a target past 2,500 meters, you know, um, for the most part, we just, we didn't have a need to. So if we didn't have to, why would we? Um, but at 4,000 meters, um, I'll put a tank round through your chest at 4,000 meters. I can tell which finger you use to pick your nose. And that's out of a smooth bore cannon. It is. How long's the barrel? So we, we realized that the ammunition we shot actually functioned better out of a smooth bore cannon than a rifled cannon. Um, there are vehicles out there, the MGS, which is a, an army, uh, 105 millimeter cannon. Um, you know, that's rifled. Um, and they had good, uh, effects with that, with that, uh, vehicle, but, uh, um, but the cannon that we had, the, uh, the 120 millimeter smoothbore cannon, our stability, our, our effectiveness, um, it was, it was just a lethal vehicle. We didn't have to worry so much about twist or, or drift at far distances. Yeah. How long's the barrel? Uh, boy, you know, now, you know, I've, I've been out of tanks for a little while. I think 17 feet, eight inches. I want to say that's what I thought was like 17, seven, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so some master gunner is probably sitting on the back of his chair, cringing like, Oh, you're a master gunner. But uh, I believe it's 17 feet, eight inches. Okay. I've been telling people 17, seven. So I'm a little bit wrong, which is not surprising. (laughs) And that round that you're putting through my chest at 4,000 meters um, you can do that while you're driving down the road. I can. Yeah. So my, st- this, the stabilization system on the tank is incredible. Um, my ability to, to basically, I can just hold on to the grips, what we call the Cadillacs because Cadillac gauge company makes the, the hand grips that we use to, to control the turret of the tank. Um, when I hold on to the Cadillacs, um, the tank itself can be going over undulating crazy uneven terrain. And that cannon will stay basically perfectly level. Um, and, and it's, it's remarkable how accurate that vehicle can be with the fire control system that we had. Uh, you know, it's, it's truly remarkable. Yeah. What about, what about abuse? Like if this tank is getting shot, especially from the front, like what kind of, what kind of round can it take or, you know, what can it not take? So, um, I mean, really it depends on, on the angles, you know, and that's kind of the, the principle of the armor that we use, um, to, to maintain classification. You know, the, the principle of the armor that we use is really related on, on angles and it's also related on space on how the homogenized armor is is i guess i'm I'm trying to be correct here how the armor is rolled and spaced out i i have been shot by rpgs probably 20 times (laughs) all the times (laughs) and literally woke up the night like didn't even know it and woke up the next morning to like a black mark on the side of my tank or the front of my tank, um, or a little bit of spalding, you know, where there's some like, you know, rolled armor, a little bit, you know, some black marks, but, uh, um, it can, it, it is, it is incredible 
when we put, I did some testing with one of the German rounds that we had and, uh, and, and we shot it at some BMP, which is a Russian vehicle. We shot at some BMP three armor. And then we also shot it at what would have resembled rolled homogenous armor that we have in our vehicle. Um, and every one of those rounds deflected off of our armor. Um, I think the biggest penetration or the greatest penetration we got was like four inches. Now, if you were to take a Sabo and anti an anti armor round, your, your penetration obviously can be much greater. Um, if we took a frontal shot with most threat vehicles, Sabo rounds, we're going to be able to absorb that impact. If we took it on the side, um, obviously our, our, likelihood of survival is much less um but the armor on that vehicle the way it's designed and the angles that they use are are what um are what deflect that round you know when you talk about kinetic energy speed times mass um and you and you take that into account with an with an angle and how that penetrator hits an angled surface and has to come to a 90 degree angle basically to to start making penetration um that's where our big key to success was. I want to kind of get into the history of tanks too, but it's worth mentioning that the history of tanks in the Marine Corps has ended or at least come to a pause uh, because the Marine Corps no longer has tanks, which is, is got to be upsetting to you. Um, it, it, it was really hurtful to me and, you know, I don't like want to, want to sound weird about it, but, uh, watching, um, second tanks get disassembled like that, that sucked. That was a really horrible feeling. Yeah. And, you know, due to COVID and stuff like that, I wasn't able to be there. I would have liked to have been there, um, you know, for basically the, the funeral of my unit, but God damn it, it. It sucks that we don't have tanks anymore. You did watch it on Skype though, right? Yep. So you saw that, uh, that you were mentioned by name in that yes, deactivation ceremony, which was powerful to me. Um, you know, I think that, uh, that that was a powerful moment, you know, that whole situation, uh, obviously I was, so I had been transferred from second tanks out to fourth tanks at that, at that point, um, when the, when the decision was made. And so I had to, and, you know, Unfortunately, um, I had to make a huge career choice. Um, I, I have been in the, at that point, I had been in the Marine Corps for 17 years um, and, uh, and had to adjust the scope of, of the, the direction or the way that I was going to tailor my career. Um, my whole career had been, had been set up and aligned towards me being a master sergeant which is really a master in my field, um, you know, uh, staying in tanks and, and maintaining that, that proficiency. Um, and when tanks went away, I had to alter my course to the first art realm, you know, and there's a lot of things throughout the course of my career that have been challenging that I look back on now and think I was so fortunate, you know, even though that, you know, this might've meant the delay in my promotion for one year or whatever the case may have been, you know, 
ultimately what it gave me was the ability to stay in the Marine Corps. Had I have been selected to mass aren't, you know, instead of first aren't prior to deactivation, uh, I wouldn't have a place to go. I would have, I, I would have basically been told at the end of my contract, my, my service was done, um, which a lot of my friends and, and brothers, you know, are facing right now. And that's challenging. Um, and I think that's the hardest thing for me is I spent 20, you know, 18 years um, becoming a master of my trade and learning everything I could about it and, and genuinely loving what I did and, uh, and having that taken away. But then on the same note, being blessed with the opportunity to, to still stay in and still be relevant to the Marine Corps as a first sergeant. Um, uh, maybe not the scope that, that I would have originally chosen, but uh, still an opportunity to, to serve. Relevant, of course, is an understatement. Um, those Marines that, that, that you are working for now who are working for you, they're, they're incredibly lucky to have you and they're better off for it. Um, so I was doing a little bit of research today on, uh, on the history of tanks and found out that in the 1500s, there was a armored wagon that had a cannon sticking out of it. And in the Czech Republic, uh, it was used, uh, to win a bunch of battles. And I think we can call that the first tank more or less. Yeah. Um, Leonardo da Vinci had drawings for an armored fighting vehicle that looks kind of like a, a flying saucer that doesn't fly. Uh, never got made. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't until 1903 that the first like Caterpillar style vehicle that had a gun was made. It died in 1908. And then World War One is really the beginning of tanks. So kind of take us through it from there. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there was, we, we as an American society were way behind that power curve, uh, when it came to tanks, um, almost every country in, in the European theater had some sort of a, an armored vehicle, uh, prior to us, actually our first armored vehicle was the French Renault. And, uh, and if you look at that, I mean, it's, it's basically an armored car with a, I, I, I want to say a 73 millimeter cannon, um, you know, we, uh, we have historically as the United States been behind the power curve, um, in armor up until about, honestly, until about the seventies, when we came out with the M60, it was still arguably comparative to the T72 and some of the other foreign countries, the, the Russian T72, um, that were out there. Uh, once we came out with the M60A1 uh, and some of the different variants off that, with the sights and the and the you know systems that we had on that, we we were able to overcome the the gap, and we became you know the the leader in the armor community. And then obviously with the inception of the M1 we just overtook everyone else. Uh, and then as that foster or fell through with the M1A1 uh, and then the M1A2 and now some of the new variants that we're looking at with the B3 and, and things like that, I mean, we're still leading, uh, leading the world in the armor community. 
But when you look at, you know, World War II, when we were going with Shermans against the Russians, uh, with Panzers and with some of these, you know, and in all the wars that we were at, I mean, we were way behind in technology. We were way behind not only in armor, but in armament. Um, I remember when I joined the Marine Corps, I straight out told the Marine Corps anything but tanks. Um, and, and I was, I was God. I mean, I was adamant, you know, and, and your dad was a Marine. He was, he was, my dad was a Marine. My grandfather was a Marine. My great grandfather was a Marine. Uh, I'm the only scumbag enlisted, you know, um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I dropped out of college, uh, at nine 11 and because of some poor life choices, you know, it may have taken me a little bit of time to actually enlist and I probably should have just followed through with college and commissioned, but, uh, it is what it is. And, uh, um, but when I joined my dad and, and, and who now is my grandfather, um, my grandmother's third husband, uh, who I look at now as as my grandfather, he's a great man. You know, they, they looked at me and said, you know, don't join tanks. It's a steel tomb. Um, you know, and, and their exposure to tanks through World War II or Korea, rather, and, and Vietnam time frame, um, that's what it was. You know, we were a steel tomb. And, uh, and then, obviously, I got tanks, and, and I was at first a little upset and disgruntled, but the Marine Corps said, you know, deal with it. And, and then I got to tank school and realized, like, wow, this is the most badass piece of machinery <laughs> out there, you know, and I'd have it no other way. I mean, here I am 18 years later and I'd do anything to get back on a tank. I'd, I'd do anything to get back with, with, with my brothers. Yeah. Well, it, it is an incredible vehicle and people ask me all the time, you know, some, the Russians will come out with, with some variant, something new, and they'll be like, well, what do you think about that? And I'd say, give me, Give me Jack Ramson and uh, <laughs> and two Abrams and, and a uh, ragtag team of misfits and yeah yeah we'll we'll go win it <laughs> yeah. I promise just turn us yeah. loose <laughs> um, it is an incredible vehicle and and there's some other great tanks in the world you know the the Merkava is a really badass tank yeah. um, you know there's there's some great tanks out there but for its scope yeah yeah there's there's no tank like the Abrams no. Yeah. Yeah. The Merkava is, I mean, the Merkava three is Merkava four. I mean, even the Merkava two is, is a great tank, you know, um, for what their design lends them to, you know, what their conflict is. Um, yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal tank, but, you know, put it up face to face against an Abrams and well, a Marine Corps Abrams, you put me and me and you in there. I'll, <laughs> I'll play that game. Sure. <laughs> I'm your Huckleberry. <laughs> yeah. So what was the Marine Corps thinking? Just, you know, they didn't want to get sucked into being an occupation force. Uh, you're too heavy. Why, why did we go away from tanks? Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, I'm not the commandant and I have read into some of this uh, top secret stuff. Um I have people that are way smarter than me that tell me at first they thought it was the biggest mistake that the Marine Corps could have ever made. And, and now that they've been read into it, they think that the commandant's a genius. Um, you know, and uh, all I can speculate on 
is you know what the commandants put out and uh and the tank is very uh labor intensive um logistically demanding piece of machinery uh and the marine corps is trying to to transition into a more lethal agile force you know whether or not that's that's the best thing is is yet to be determined um if our next fight is overseas through islands and through different um naval naval settings um then our commandant is probably a genius because you know the ability to hold four tanks on a ship might not be as uh beneficial as our ability to hold another company or another um regiment of artillery or high mars or other vehicles and that was kind of the thought process was you know we can we can take away something that is very logistically demanding and very niche um and and use other weapon systems or assets that can get us further uh results and that's kind of the thought process whether or not i agree with it is one thing but yeah yeah and i'm i'm too close to it to say you know it's it it, it's tanks are you know they're they're part of who i am that tanks are, are part of my identity so if you come up to me and say hey you think we should get rid of tanks. It's like somebody saying, Hey, you know, you mind if I cut off one of your arms? Cause that's, that's really what it feels like. It's like, no, I'm absolutely, I, I don't know if I can win a fight with only one arm, but yeah. yeah. Anyways. Um, what are some lessons that, that you would give hunters that you feel like tankers have like what, what, what about operating a tank and fighting with a tank are skills that they are really transferable to hunters? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, man, you're putting me on the spot. I thought I was going to be talking about whitetails here and, and I'm, uh, I'm talking about tanks. So, um, yeah, awesome. So I would say that one of the things would be, you know, in the tank community, we talk about weapon saddle self. Um, you know, you take care of your weapon, uh, obviously your cannon, your machine guns, your, your M4s, everything that goes pew pew. Um, and then you take care of your saddle, you take care of the vehicle that gets you there. You take care of, of the means that puts you into the fight or into the scenario. And then you take care of yourself. So I, I would say that that is probably one of the things that um, communicates directly to hunting. Um, you've got to be familiar with the platform, the weapon system that you're shooting. Um, be it, you know, uh, a, a tribe bow, um, you know, or be it a, a, a six hour cross rifle. I mean, you could, you could have whatever platform it is that you're going to use. You owe it to the animal, um, to be as proficient with that weapon system as you can be. And to know that weapon system as well as you can to ensure, you know, a, a, a humane harvest, um, so I think that that's probably one of the biggest things that translates from being a tanker is, is taking care of the, the platform that you're going to use um, to either kill the enemy or kill 
the target species, um, ensuring that not only you take care of that, but you are, are familiar and intimate enough with it to be, to be lethal. Um, that's, that's what I would say. That comes from old school cavalry stuff. Like first thing you do is make sure that your horse is fed and and watered and, and ready to go. And you take care of your saddle and your rifle and your gear, and then you take care of yourself. Absolutely. When, when I was at the basic school, we got back from a field operation and everybody's dirty. It's been a billion degrees. You're sweaty You're covered in chigger bites. Um, <laughs> and I cleaned, I cleaned my gun and I put it away and I went and took a shower. And when I was coming out of the shower, my staff platoon commander, Major Mark Vloshin came busted into my room and he goes, why are you wet and naked? It's like, I just got out of the shower, sir. And he's like, is your gun clean? He didn't say gun, but you know, it was a, it was a saw. I said, yes, sir. Pulled it out, looked at it. He's like, is everybody in your platoon's rifle clean? I was like, I actually don't know about that one. And it was not <laughs> the case. And I was wrong. Right. Yeah. Because I was taking care of myself before all of the saddles were taken care of. And yeah. I was completely wrong in that. So it's, it's, it's painful sometimes because you, you want to take care of yourself first, but if you don't and you save that for last, you are more capable because the things that you rely on are ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you can't, you can't expect to, to go into any situation, um, without having your gear, your assets in, in a, in a position where, they're going to be able to support you. I mean, you know, you can only do so much. What about PCCs and PCIs? Yeah, my probably probably the most important thing. What are what are they? First of all, so PCCs are pre-combat checks, and PCIs are pre-combat inspections. Um, and and really, what it amounts to is before you before you go out and do something, you have a certain standard that you need to ensure that your, your gear, your weapon systems, your uh, personnel are in. Um, you need to make sure, you know, like I've, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts and you've talked about how your expectations um, of your clients when you're guiding, um, what you expect of them when, they, before they come out on the hunt, you know, and that's in essence, that's a, a, a a PCC. That's a, that's a pre-combat check. You're, you're ensuring that they've got the right equipment to be able to harvest the animals or to, to be successful. However, that's measured, um, you know, that, that, that they can. And then your inspection is now prior to us going out to the field and, and, and potentially, you know, taking a a shot on an animal. Um, I want to see that you're competent. I want to see that you're capable. Um, so not only am I going to check to ensure that your equipment is adequate um, and make sure that, that, that you've done all the tuning, that you've done all the pre-work, that you've done all the practice, that you're, you've got the right arrows, you've got the right, you know, bow, you're, you know, um, but I want to see you actually put that down range and, and put it all together. I want to ensure that you're going to be competent in the way that you're, um, harvesting these animals. Um, and it could come down to gear too. I mean, if you, you know, uh, I've never hunted in Oregon with you, unfortunately, it's something that I'd love to do, but I haven't been able to do it, but there's, there's obviously some gear that you would have that in Northern Wisconsin, I probably would look at and think, 
that's that's ridiculous you know <laughs> um you know i mean probably some thicker shirts because of all the thick you know thickets and everything you know but uh um you know, but that's where PCCs, PCIs come in, you know, is, is you've got to ensure that not only the equipment that you have is, is not only taken care of, but you're using it, you're wearing it, you're employing it in the manner that's, that's effective. The way I look at it for, for a, a pre-hunt check and, and inspection is I will lay out everything that I'm going to take and I'm going to make sure that it works. And that's my pre-combat check. I've got everything. Everything works. On the floor next to me right now, I have a raft blown up that I blew up yesterday that I'm planning on taking into the mountains this weekend. I blew it up yesterday because I need to know now whether it's got a <laughs> leak or not so that I can fix yeah. it. Otherwise, I might pack a boat all the way into the mountains that you know has a leak in it. And then exactly. my pre-combat inspection, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of people that live next to me that I hunt with. You know, I live in a really rural area. There's nobody that lives next to me. I can see three states from right here and zero other houses. So I'll call somebody, you know, I'll call Bam or I'll call Jordan Bud or I'll call Kyle Nye and be like, hey, this is everything that I'm bringing, you know, just looking for a sanity check. And they'll be like, well, do you have this? I'm like, no, I'll throw that in. So that's, that's the way that I've sort of translated it into civilian hunting use, but it's an incredibly important thing and it will save you so much pain and frustration in the field. You know, I overlooked it one time with my son. Um, It was the first time that my son ever went turkey hunting and, uh, and and I'm ashamed that I'm going to say this, you know, but, uh, but we went out there um and you know it's four in the morning and uh and we had two different guns it was you season i i ended up making the call at the last minute to have him hunt with my gun um but he still had three and a half inch shells in his pocket and my gun only took three inch shells and uh and so at the last minute i handed him my gun and said hey man use my benelli and uh and so he took the pockets out of his shell and tried load them in there and he was, you know, and he was still pretty young. He was 12 years old. And so I kind of took the gun from him and shoved it in there and it's oh dark 30. And, uh, and I went to go chamber around and it didn't chamber. And, uh, and so for the next probably 15 minutes, I sat there disassembling my Benelli, trying to get this three and a half inch shell on a receiver that didn't take it. Um, and had I have, you know, taking a tactical pause and, and stopped and said, you know, Hey, um, both of our guns don't take three and a half inch shells, you know, and not have given them those, um, on my PCCs or PCIs. Um, we probably would have gotten into the bush early enough to where we would have caught the turkeys where they were roosted, <laughs> but it's where they were going. Now it ended up being probably the most, uh, exciting hunt that I've ever been on. You know, I, I, uh, we found the turkeys and, and I ended up crawling out into a, into a, a, a road uh, or a trail rather, but uh, behind my, my turkey as I was trying to set it out. And as I did that, I think you were even down here when I did this, but uh, as I set that, my decoy up in the trail and I low crawled out there to do it behind my decoy, um, I had two, two toms come from about 180 yards away on a dead sprint at me and I dare not move. And here's my son who's never shot a Turkey before. Um, he's only got about three deer under his belt. And, uh, 
and I'm laying behind the decoy and I ended up, all I could do was pull up my, my camera, my phone and start recording it. And, uh, and those toms got about probably 12 yards away and I was all but yelling at him, shoot, Alex, shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Before he finally dusted one, it was pretty, pretty intense. It was awesome. But, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Lots of fun, you know, hunting with kids, I'll tell you is, is more rewarding than, uh, I'd, I'd rather have my kids, you know, as, as, as you've seen, my son has shot a bigger buck than I've ever shot, you know, and I'd rather have my kids shoot something like that than me at this point. Heck yeah. I'll have my time. Tell me about bears and deer in, uh, in the Northwoods of Wisconsin. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Wisconsin's cool, man. You know, it's, uh, it's a real diverse, <laughs> you know, it is, it's a real diverse state and God, I miss it. You know, I, I, I miss it. Um, you know, cause, uh, we go from, uh, you know, way up North by my grandpa, um, is real coniferous, real, um, you know, real thick, dense woods. You know, you've got the Shiguamga national forest, which is actually South of him. Um, which is just dense, nasty, thick, you know, cedar and, and, and coniferous based. And then you get kind of towards the, uh, the upper, what we call the upper North or Northwest, um, which is, is very deciduous. Um, we have tons of, of, uh, oaks and, and rolling hills and still unglaciated and, and, uh, and then you get into the South where it's glaciated more and it's more flat. Uh, we have more farmland. So the, 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 the areas in Wisconsin are very diverse and Wisconsin's a very unique, uh, state in my opinion. Um, you know, so when it comes to bears, um, I've hunted bears, uh, only once in my life, you know, I grew up and, and I mean, there would be times where we'd have, I remember one year we had 14 different bears come in our backyard. Uh, I lived a half mile in the woods, um, you know, on, on over a thousand acres. I mean, we were, we were deep in and, uh, um, and we had 14 different bears that we had come into our backyard that year. Uh, and that's kind of what we knew, you know, every year that we would kind of have ebbs and tides like that, we knew that we had issues. Um, and, uh, you know, but I, I just had such a love for the bears. I mean, I just thought they were such cool animals. I never really hunted them as a kid, you know, um, which is unique because like, yeah, that's why I hunt is because I love animals. You know, that's elk is my favorite animal and, and that's why I hunt it, you know, but, uh, um, I never really had the opportunity. Unfortunately in Wisconsin, usually it takes quite a few preference points to, to harvest a, a bear. Um, I never put in for it. I actually, uh, finally, when I started putting in for it, I did harvest a bear. We got to a point where my dad had quite a few problem bears. Um, we had one, you know, one bear he called Dolly that was, she was probably about, you know, nine or 10 years old and she was about a 500 pound sow. And, uh, uh and that was kind of my target bear. And then he had a, a boar that he called Brutus that was, you know, probably a 550 pound bear, um, upward of 600, but, but probably not quite peaking that. And, uh, um, I ended up shooting, shooting a sow that was about 350 pounds. Um, but it was, it was incredible, man. I, that my son was about 10 years old and, and he was hunting with me 
and I was I was rotating between the three boys, but he was up in the blind with me. And, uh, and I, you know, I had been sitting there for a couple hours and, uh, and got a little stiff and sore and, uh, and got up to kind of go check the bait more or less, you know, if nothing else, just, uh, just to get up and stretch. And it was about probably two in the afternoon and I got out there and kicked around a little bit and, and, uh, and made sure that I had good scent in the air and no kidding turned around and there was Brutus. Um, and he was a big big bear you know he was like i said about 575 not quite 600 um and he was about probably six yards from me um and i was between him and the and the food um yeah, that's a so moment not not the point that i wanted to be you sure you know how to skin grizz pilgrim yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just as fast as you can find him but uh um you know unfortunately he took off um and, uh, and I never did get a crack at him. I had a couple cracks at Dolly. Um, but you know, she had, you know, with whatever she was bearing that year and that was the year, that's why we were trying to get her. Um, but she had a daughter that was with her, um, that, that she kept tight that whole fall. And, uh, and I think she was teaching her how to den up. She was probably a four-year-old bear with Dolly. Um, so she'd been alone for a couple of years. I think that was the first year she was barren. Um, and so those two came in together and, uh, and, and I just couldn't get a good shot at her, but, uh, you know, it's interesting, kind of like we were talking about before, if you look at the history of the bears and in, in Wisconsin, um, it's all kind of, you know, being attributed or, or the, uh, the research is showing the reason why bears in Wisconsin, um, along with North Carolina, are as big as they are, is because they're ancestors of the the flat-nosed bear. Um, and uh, the flat-nosed bear was a bear that was around, you know, two thousand years ago or something, and uh, and was was massive, you know, two thousand pounds, just a a huge bear. And for whatever reason, in those two regions, they've kept that genetic makeup. And that's why the bears in those areas are bigger. Um, you know, and I've had a lot of run-ins with bears over my life. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm more comfortable around bears than I am with people in most situations. But, uh, you know, but it's, it's fun. Um, you know, whitetails, on the other hand, uh, I, you know, I grew up and, and every year we would shoot a 200-pound doe. Um, and, and that was kind of normal to me and I didn't really appreciate the, the size of the deer in the area that we grew up in until I was probably about ready to go to college, um, and really didn't appreciate it until after I joined the Marine Corps and, and brought, you know, and, and was moving all around the world and, or around the U S and seeing different, different sizes of of whitetail, you know, you get into North Carolina and they're the size of my dog and, and, uh, um, you know, but that's what they need to survive in the area that they're in. And that's why we have so many different subspecies. Um, but whitetail hunting in Wisconsin is, is pretty diverse depending on where you're at. Um, you know, you get up North by my grandpa in the coniferous area and, and there's, it's, it's a population density of maybe, you know, six to eight per, per square mile you get down by us in the deciduous forests and we're sitting 
right now at probably an unhealthy herd, you know, probably upward of 20 per square mile. Uh, and then you get down south in the in the farms, you know, it's it's very similar to Illinois and and uh, some of the other uh, farmlands where you're looking at, you know, 2024 and and it's maybe a little bit more healthy down there with the crops and everything. But um, now you've got wolves in the mix. We do, we do. Um, so wolves have been there for a while. We got we got lions. Yeah. So Wisconsin finally. Um, accepted or admitted that we actually have lions um <laughs> you know after a couple thousand um, game camera photos proving it oh man it's been painful i mean it was you know we didn't cut a lot of lion tracks but we would cut one or two every year um but uh but the wolves are devastating yeah. um and we finally opened up a wolf season a couple of years back um well, I think actually, I mean, I say a couple of years back, we opened up our first wolf season. I think the year that, that I was an instructor with you. Um, and then we shut it off for two or three years. Um, you know, that some, for some political reasons, unfortunately, and we've opened it back up. Um, but the wolves are devastating. I mean, I've seen, I've seen a pack of wolves come in and, and kill, you know, two or three deer, and take, you know, a handful of bites out of them and then, you know, go a quarter mile and kill another, you know, two or three deer. And, uh, and they're, they're just, they're ruthless killers. Um, and they do it almost for sport. It's, it's not for, for need. It's not a necessity driven killing. They're just murderers. I mean, they're, you know, um, it's, uh, it's pretty horrific to watch a pack of wolves. It's, it's horrific, but it's also, um, it's, it's interesting. And I've seen it a couple of times, you know, watch a pack of wolves take deer down. Um, and they almost use tactics that we would use in the military. Um, I agree. They're just in, intelligent, intelligent animals and, and, uh, but just ruthless killers. Yeah. 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 Um, besides the, the really intelligent part, I'd say that a lot of guys in the military are pretty ruthless killers too. <laughs> <laughs> That's the rumor. Yeah. <laughs> nah. Um, I think there's some, there's some real misunderstanding about the types of people that are in the military and, you know, the, it's, it's the most diverse group that I've ever worked with. Um, racially diverse it's it's ideologically and religiously diverse yeah so many backgrounds coming from all over the country different levels of education the smartest people i've ever met in my life um yeah it's it, it's a really incredible group of people and by the time by the time you're out you sort of just get viewed like as a veteran and it's it's not it's not, you've, you've lost any semblance of, of individuality. You know, you don't, you sort of get treated differently as a Marine. People really don't know what Marines are and don't understand what they do or what they're like, but it's, it's an interesting thing. And fortunately, I think by the time you become a veteran, you're, you're fairly comfortable with anonymity and, you know, your time and service, like you're, you're part of a machine. Like it, it's all teamwork. You're not seeking glory. And there's guys 
that definitely do seek glory and want to become individuals afterwards. And, and, you know, they'll write books or, you know, what, whatever they need to do. Um, and I'm not trying to, to take away from that, but it's definitely less common than, than what I've experienced. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it is, you're right. It's a very eclectic, um, you know, different, different group. You know, you, it's, it's amazing to me when I, talk to, to Marines, you know, throughout my time and just what they did before. And, you know, I've had Marines that, that were lawyers. Um, I've had Marines, you know, I've, I've got a Marine right now who's a doctor, um, you know, and, uh, um, it, it is, it, it's incredible to look at some of the people and their reasons and their, and, and their, their motivation, behind joining the Marine Corps and why they've either stayed in or, or they've joined, you know, it's, it's incredible to see the, uh, the meld of people that, that we have. Well, folks, you know, if, if you haven't gotten, gotten the sense by now, um, Jack is, is one of the, one of the all time greats. Um, and you should feel privileged to have gotten to listen to him on this podcast. And I definitely, you know, and privileged to, to have been able to serve with you and, and to have the, the close relationship that we had and, and continue to, I mean, it's like talking with you right now, like we haven't had a, a conversation longer than a couple text messages in, in years, but you know, yeah. it, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like we just rolled back inside the wire and lit a couple of cigars and, you know, decided which of our dudes we were going to yell at for the various crimes that they'd committed that day. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And, and genuinely the, the feeling is mutual. You know, there's, there's a, a lot of, a lot of times that I sit back and I think about the time and I reflect about, reflect on, on what we did and what we had, you know, and, and you were, you were a great friend and, and uh, you're, you're a great mentor and, and leader and I appreciate everything that I've had with you as far as experiences and opportunities. Well, thank you, brother. Look forward to going elk hunting with you. Can't wait until I you retire wait. and we can start doing it on the regular. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so, man. Okay. Well, thanks again, Jack. No, thank you. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store and catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. 
Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.